Hello, and welcome back to Lots of Planets Have a North, a Northern Doctor Who podcast. Today we are doing a special episode on companions. The best, and maybe the worst. So, the way we're going to do this is we're each going to run through, and we have compiled lists of our favourite companions. Uh, And in going through those lists, we'll talk about kind of what we like about these companions and what we like about companions in general, to an extent, well, things that we like less and things that we think work less well and that kind of thing. So, I think, shall we just jump straight into it? Yeah, Yeah. should we say who we are? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm Kieran. I'm Bethan. I'm Jacob. And that's a thing we normally do in the first 10 seconds. Yeah, I was considering, like, giving a crazy alias, but I think that Bethan will probably do. I think it'll do for now, yeah. yeah. You can, if you want to change your name midway through. Okay, I'll just, I'll, 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 I'll let everyone know. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, well, we would jump into the top five, son? Yeah, mm-hmm. fab. Okay, so we'll go through each of our, each sort of entry on the list, person by person. So I will start with my number five. The rest of my list I was happy enough with, but this one I kind of thought quite a lot about. And even now I think, I, I wonder about this one. But I think it's justifiable for various reasons. I'm going to preface this by saying this is not necessarily the companion that I think had the best run on the series. And in fact, part of the reason maybe why I elevate them is I think there was a lot of potential that was not explored. But my number five is Nyssa. So why, why Nyssa? Well, like, famously, um, season 19 is, like, a very crowded TARDIS. Uh, and I think Nissa's the one who suffers most from that. To an extent, the Doctor suffers as well, actually. Because by their nature, Tegan and Adric kind of demand more of the... More space, more attention. Because Nissa is the kind of... Maybe not, necess- not even necessarily the quieter one, but, like, the the more quietly competent one. I think she, to an extent, can get a bit sidelined. And I think that's a real shame because I really like the idea of uh, a companion, a companion who is, like, noticeably younger than the Doctor, uh, even even the fifth Doctor, but who has a similar level of kind of, of scientific knowledge, or at least some level of scientific knowledge, and uh, of just of general competence who can be a problem solver in her own right, and who doesn't always need pulling out of trouble. Now, the issue is, of course, that this is not really how it pans out. Because, as things stand, like, Nyssa doesn't get nearly enough to do, and when she does get things to do, they're often, like, fairly stupid things. For instance, Snake Dance is a really good story. And is a story in which, because Tegan's possessed, Nyssa is functionally the only companion for a lot of the story. But she doesn't get a huge amount to do in that. She's mostly just kind of running a- around after after the Doctor or looking around for Tegan. She gets a bit of, like, stealthy stuff in, like, the second and third episodes. Uh, hiding out in the, the baddies' place. But she doesn't get a chance to shine. She never gets to use her actual talents. And I think she ha- she had so much potential. What I will say is, um, this is a, an area where I can credit Big Finish, unusually, um, because I think um, Big Finish did the character a lot of favours. 
um, because they there are quite a few big Finnish audios that are like just the Fifth Doctor and Nissa. Sarah Sutton seems to be one be one of the people they got on board quite quickly. Like for instance, the one I I think of most is there's a was one called Circular Time, which is written by a few different people. I think I can't remember who off the top of my head. I think Paul Cornell wrote one of them, but it's like a series of stories involving the Fifth Doctor and Nissa at various points. And the last of which is a kind of epilogue in which Nissa is like happily living her own life and like the Fifth Doctor's regeneration sort of resonates with her in a dream, something like that. And it's a much better send off for her than Terminus was. So I'm quite happy that exists. But yeah, I think I just I have a lot of sympathy for Nissa on the basis of that kind of that wasted potential. Something that we're doing that I forgot to mention at the top, by the way, is for each companion that we name, we're going to, on our lists, we're going to uh, sort of name an episode that we think is like them at their best, or maybe even just like an episode that shows off what we like about them, that kind of thing. And so for Nyssa, this was, this was the hardest choice, I have to say, because, like I say, there aren't that many episodes with good Nyssa. I was, in fact, I was half thinking of the Keeper of Tracking. But the one I actually went for in the end was Castrovalva. On the basis that Castrovalva, because the Doctor's kind of in a box for half the episode, uh, actually gives Nyssa and Tegan quite a bit to do. They get You get to see a lot of the kind of the interplay between them and like Sarah Sutton and Janet Fielding are really good together. So that's quite nice to see. It's not something you really get to see a whole lot of in other episodes for all that they, they do tend to get kind of paired together. I don't necessarily mean that in a slash trick way, but go for it. <laughs> if you want to take it that way. But the other reason I, I'm thinking of Castrovalva is it also kind of shows off the wasted potential at the center of the character. Because on the one hand, it's an episode based around obscure scientific principles because it's written by Christopher Bidmead. But of course, it's the Doctor who gets to figure that out. Which, in a way, makes sense, because it, make, it makes sense that you'd want to have the Doctor at the centre of that story and at the centre of the, the climax, especially because it's a new Doctor. But it does mean that after about the second episode, Nyssa kind of gets sidelined. The other problem is, it is the point at which, after Legopolis, she just forgets that the Master has taken over the body of her father. It's just kind of something that doesn't seem to really bother her. Which is troubling and kind of reflects the way the, the character was underserved uh, by the writing at that point in time. Uh, which I think is a great scene and is why I honour her with a place on my list. So, Bethan, do you want to t- tell us your number five? Yeah, sure. So, this again gave me some trouble. I think it's because five's a difficult spot because that's really the point where they're either on the list or they're mm. not. So it's like quite highly contested. Yeah. I have gone with Donna Noble, mm. and the reasoning behind this, I, I like all the all the Davies era companions about the same, to be honest, mm. and so it was really a question of like which one takes this slot. I like Rose a lot, but I feel like because she was so much sort of setting what the sort of default standard for companions was for the New Who era, mm. it feels like a little bit of a cop-out to choose her, just because like she is kind of the archetype in some ways. Um, much as I do like her. Mm. Martha, I think, got a bit of a rough deal because I like her a lot as well, but I think that at the time, because she had the whole unrequited pining for the Doctor angle, Mm. 
it was a bit much after the romance of the previous one series slash two series. And I think part of the reason why John has taken this for me is because it felt so refreshing at the time and I still like remember that to have a companion that was a little bit older and like quite a big, famously big personality actually because she was first introduced as like the slightly stunt casting in Runaway Bride. Mm. It was kind of nice to see um, the Davies era playing with something slightly different for the companion than maybe even what had been seen in the classic era. Although, you know, there's a lot of variety in companions in the classic era. But yeah, I think that I think that it was nice to see Catherine Tate in more dramatic roles. And I really think it's interesting because she's one of those people where I feel like Doctor Who was a real sort of shift in her career because I think that's when mm-hmm. people in general sort of realise like, oh, she can do drama and she can do comedy that's not just her own sort of sketch show. And it was obviously like a big factor in her getting cast in like Much Ado About Nothing and things. I don't really know what she's doing at the moment. I hope she's thriving. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's nice to see it. It's nice to see it be a way for someone to sort of stretch their wings dramatically. Unfortunately, series four is not my fave. Hmm. I, for, so as an example of a good episode for her, I've chosen Silence in the Library slash... Hmm. Um, Forest of the Dead. Forest of the Dead, which is a little bit of a cop out because it is just the best to the best story in the series. But I think it's also quite nice because in the bit where um, we have her sort of uploaded to the archives, um, we get to see her sort of enjoy the life that is kind of what she's been hankering for in a way. Although she mm. also is enjoying traveling with the Doctor, and then it's kind of about the conflict that she's feeling as she realises that something's wrong because it's everything she ever wanted, but is it quite right for her? And I think that it's a really nice, quite subtle moment. I do also like her in Fires of Pompeii, but I just thought that um, overall I quite like that sort of playing with her expectations of what she wants versus like how life is for her. I did seriously consider not putting her on my list just because earlier... I had the realisation that the question time woman looks like Donna Noble's mum. (laughs) This might not make any sense anymore, depending on when this episode comes out. There might be a new question time woman. We might have forgotten all about the question time woman. There might have been several question time people in a few weeks before this comes out. But um, it was troubling. But I powered through it because Mm. I think it was worth it for Donna, (laughs) even if her mum might be the question time woman. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I think that's um, all I was sort of going to say about about Donna, really. Um, I might have some honourable mentions later related mm-hmm. to the Davies yes. era. Yeah, um, I, um, I am less fond of Donna, but I it's more because she doesn't just sort of somehow doesn't quite resonate me, with me. I've never been able to put my finger on it, but uh, you've made a good case for her. And actually, I think Silence in the Library, Forest of the Dead is a really good pick of episode. I think yeah, I, would take that as well. mm-hmm. I think part of the reason why I like Donna so much and why I think she's quite popular is because I don't want I don't like to say that she's unconve- not conventionally attractive because I think she's just a little bit older than some of the other companions. Yeah. Like I don't like I I think that when people say that they're kind of selling Catherine Tate a little bit short. Yeah, to be I've never liked that. But I do like that she's got a different sort of set of priorities than mm-hmm. the more mm-hmm. younger people, and I think that. Because of who she is, they're less concerned with maybe doing like weird or more comic things with her than they might want to do with the younger characters' plot lines. But 
Yeah, I just, um, I think that the fact that she's a different kind of female character for the show, or certainly was at the time, I think that's a big reason why uh, she continues to be quite popular. Hmm. Uh, Jacob, do you want to give us your number five? Uh, are we looking at four and five? And uh, all all of these are, I'm still quite unsure about. But um, number five, I have put... And this is this may be controversial, but some people may say it's not companion. I disagree. I disagree. The Brigadier. Ah, okay. Um, He's at number five because, as we've kind of discussed before, I have some kind of discomfort with the unit era to an extent, Mm. but I also really like it. And I think I felt like he needed to be on here because he's such a central figure to the program for such a long period of time um you know going back to Troughton right through to McCoy mm. um I kind of felt like it was like I needed to put him on here but yeah I I think a lot of what I like about him comes from Nicholas Courtney and his performance mm. um you know it's just kind of like we've discussed before it's just pretty spot on really I think it's quite good to have someone who sometimes has an antagonistic relationship with the Doctor as well. Because that kind of brings out all kinds of like moral and ethical debates, um, particularly between him and Pertwee. So, you know, like, I don't know. I mean, they don't really get into it, but, you know, you, you see them clash on things like the Silurians, where mm. it's never really properly explored, but they do throughout the episode sort of clash about whether they should use military force and so on. But I think, yeah, if I was going to pick an episode, I would probably pick for him Spearhead from Space, mainly because it's the introduction of the Third Doctor, so the Third Doctor's kind of to one side, the Brigadier has centre stage. Mm. Unit has been introduced before, but it's 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 the moment where Unit will become uh, a kind of a regular thing within the series for a number of years. And also it's just quite entertaining to kind of watch him interacting with the new Doctor and, mm. <laughs> and, and be quite bemused about the fact that he's got a completely different face. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Spearhead is the point at which the Brig is almost a main character. It essentially is a main character and mm. um, for the first time, but he will be for the next five years. So yeah, I think that makes sense. And it's kind of the audience being reintroduced to him as well. Mm. I, uh, I'm i almost surprised at myself that the Brig didn't make my list, to be honest. Uh, spoiler, he didn't make my list. <laughs> um, I, I'm a sure honourable mention. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think it's because... Even though I have no issue with um, counting him as a companion, I never think of him as one. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm thinking of him as com- if I'm thinking of companions, he is na- he just doesn't come up. Uh, I think I think of him as something separate, and I don't even quite know what that is. And I think maybe in part it's because he transcends era. Mm-hmm. It's because he was in the show on and off from like whatever 1968 to 89. Whereas all of the companions are really tied to an era, a doctor, even the ones that like appear with more than one doctor. But the Brig, even though he appears by far the most with the third doctor, it is harder to think of him as tied to a particular era in that regard. So I think of him as something something transcendental. Yeah, it's weird because I, I, I love the Brig, but I didn't even for a second consider him as a companion to go mm. on the companions list, mm. which I think says something weird about my ideas of what a companion is. And 
it is kind of strange because obviously when we were thinking about what counted as a companion for the purposes of this episode, we were just kind of like, well, if you think they are, then they can be a companion. Mm. But there is no like true definition, obviously. So it's like, it's always interesting to hear about where, mm. what people, because now I'm thinking about it. I'm like, oh, well, of course the Brigadier is a companion, but I didn't, mm. it just didn't click with I me. I have to admit, I also didn't think of it for a very long time. Mm. I was like, I'd done three or four, I think I was like, who am I going to put on four and five? And then I realised the Brigadier is a thing. Yeah. <laughs> a moustache came before you in a vision. And yeah, you, that is that There is could only happened. be one. <laughs> it is funny because it's actually kind of hard to come up with a metric of what's a companion that mm. the Brig doesn't fit. Because mm. he has travelled in the TARDIS. He, ha- um, like he has obviously a close working relationship with the Doctor. Mm. He appears in, like, a lot of episodes. So it is it is kind of weird that he doesn't necessarily always come to mind. But, yeah. Maybe he has too much of an existence outside of the Doctor is the problem. Yeah, I think you yeah. could be right. Because he kind of has his own stuff going on always. Yeah. And the Doctor's kind of often as much of an annoyance to him mm. as he is, like, yeah. anything else. So mm. maybe that's the... Yeah. Thing, but I think also we're not used to thinking of companions mm. as being people in any kind of position of power. Mm. Or mm. honestly, I think we still often like will think of the female companions, even though obviously since the start of the show, mm. there's been male companions that have come in and out and stuff. But I think that might be part of it as mm. well. Mm. Um, why we're not so quick to be like. Oh, the brig is a companion. <laughs> also, I suppose they're colleagues as well. Is the other thing, which yeah, is, which is a, mm. a, 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 I guess, slightly different from what he usually has with companions. Mm. Uh, and as you mm. say, there's there's at times an antagonistic relationship. And yeah. while, um, I mean, the Doctor's relationship with most of my list actually is isn't exactly frictionless. In fact, this is probably the only one where it is. It's still, it doesn't. They rarely kind of like are outright not acting against each other's interests because it's never quite that far, but like, or maybe the Salurians. Mm. But they never have the kind of deep-rooted disagreements that the Doctor kind of inevitably has with a, yeah. a military figure in authority. Mm. Okay, shall we move on then? Yeah, Part number sure. four. Uh, so, my number four, my, I should say in advance, my number two, three, and four could easily swap places uh, on a different day. Uh, and so putting this individual at number four actually feels a bit low, but I also, I couldn't really justify putting them above the people who are at three and two. So my number four is Bill Potts. Woo! <laughs> and the room Good goes show. wild. Good show. The fans are in the house. Yes. Uh, yeah, I love Bill. Bill is so good. Yeah. Bill, I mean, obviously there are the there are the obvious things about Bill that she's um that she's a person of color, that she's a lesbian. Uh, and so there's just immediately a kind of progressive energy to having that kind of person as a companion. But as we have seen in recent years, diversity of casting does not necessarily re- result in a show with progressive ideals uh, or indeed <laughs> companions who embody those ideals. Which sounds a little bit harsh on the fan. And is. But what I think, what I love about Bill is that she brings a really different energy to the show from any other companion. Like it start in the in her first couple of episodes in the pilot, and I, even in Smile as well, 
there's a recurring thing where she's asking kind of strange questions and she she's asking kind of things that the doctor doesn't expect and so she feels very fresh and i think especially after um clara had a uh, by the time bill came along clara had been the companion for like three years yeah um i think so <laughs> and like um in the eyes of some people at least it had come to kind of dominate the show and so it kind of made sense to have someone who was quite different and bill is just fantastic from moment one to moment last uh, <laughs> she re- uh pearl mackie really lights up the screen I- from moment one to moment twice mm. <sighs> I can't say enough great things about Pearl Mackey, actually. Um, I really want to see her, like, in everything, if at all possible. Because she's she's so wonderful. And, like, I, I've said the word energy so many times. But it's the, the kind of... The, there's a vibrancy that she really brings to, this, to the role. And to her interactions with the Twelfth Doctor. Uh, that I think bring out interesting aspects of his character as well. Mm. The kind of what people refer to as like the kind of grandfatherly. But there's also a kind of professorial thing there because he's a, a mentor thing because he's he is literally in a, a university position somehow in that series <laughs> uh, through a mysterious chain of events. Um, he hasn't even in it for like 50 years as well or something. Yeah. Like <laughs> it's been a while since I watched the pilot. But yeah, there is, he's certainly been there for a while because the vault has been there mm. for a while. Mm. I mean, there's also the class dynamic, which yeah. we can't forget, because um, similar, to, kind of similar to Rose, but even more pointed in some ways, because they, they occupy different positions within the same institution, where the Doctor is um, presumably a professor, uh, certainly a, at least a, an academic, uh, and Bill works in the kitchens. There's that lovely, lovely moment, actually, in the pilot where the Doctor says that he's been watching her in lectures and that... When most people don't understand something, they frown, but she smiles, which is just a beautiful... It doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense, but it's a beautiful (laughs) moment. And I think it's one that really kind of encapsulates her character nicely as well. The episode I've chosen for Bill, then, is, again, there were a few... uh, For someone who's only in, what, uh, 13, 14 episodes? Um, There were a lot of good choices here. The pilot. I mean, I've already picked out some great moments from the pilot. But I think the episode that really showcases what Bill brings to the show is Thin Ice. Thin Ice, most obviously because it has the great moment that I return to every single time I talk about the Twelfth Doctor and about the show in this period of the Doctor punching a Regency racist. (laughs) um, Which is wonderful on every conceivable level. And, And I think that moment is interesting in this context because it's it's a moment like a lot of the rest of that episode that exists because Bill is there. Mm. Uh, and Bill being there forces the, the series in a way to, or at least forces that episode to engage with the material realities of Regency London in a way that it very rarely does. Uh, and to a, a kind of impressive degree, I, I think um, Sarah Dollard, who I also can't say enough great things about, mm-hmm. deserves a lot of credit for um, for recognizing that potential within the character in only her third episode, and um, Bill's third episode that is Sarah Dollard's second episode for the show, and for kind of for bringing that out. It's also it's an episode that brings out interesting aspects of the Doctor in the the bit where he completely contradicts himself by punching a racist, 
uh, and in the the notion of him serving at the pleasure of the human race, um, which is also kind of forms a dialogue with stuff that happened while Clara was companion as well. But yeah, I I think Thin Ice is fantastic. Uh, I can't wait till we get to series 10 so I can talk about it in more detail than I already am. But I also think it is like, in some ways, even if it's not necessarily the best episode of uh, Bill's tenure, although it's up there, I think it is probably the best Bill episode. All right. Well, you said the pilot loads of times. It just kept me, made me think of the pilot, not the pilot from um, <laughs> the show that goes wrong. Goes wrong show. The goes wrong show, yeah. Uh, recommendation. <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway, my number four is Sarah Jane Smith. Ah. I kind of wasn't sure about this choice for a while just because Sarah Jane's in like so much of the show that she gets some good episodes and some really bad ones. Mm. And especially after we just had done our episode about the monster of Peladon, which is not <laughs> a great time for her. No. I was really like unsure, but I think that in so many ways she really like sets the mold for what a companion can be mm. in her like willingness to investigate stuff because she's a journalist and in the fact that she manages to have relate that she's she has friendships with two doctors which i think is like one of the things that really shows what a strong companion that she is that she's able to bridge that gap between pertwee and tom baker um because it's interesting we're talking about companions that are with like are tied to an era and i do think people associate sarah jane more with tom baker i think because she has better episodes in his era mm-hmm. but um, I do think it's interesting that she manages to span that amount of time um, and they show her interacting with two different incarnations of the Doctor in interesting ways. I also like the fact that she's the companion that they brought back for school reunion and I think she's great there. I think Sarah Jane Adventures was cute and fun and I just feel like in so many ways Sarah Jane is an icon and that's part of the reason why she made it onto my list just because... She's so much part of what the show is and mm. at its best and its worst, mm. I think. For my best Sarah Jane story, I actually chose Robot mostly, mm. not as like the best story that she's in necessarily, although it's good, but because I think that that really shows the way that she was like the bridge between the two doctors mm. and she does some good investigating. There's a robot for her to interact with and interacting with robots is a key criteria all companions must pass and that is why sarah jane is my jellical choice for number four i just threw a pen across the room in my excitement <laughs> i'm so excited about the, je- the jellical choice like everyone should be we're gonna make you watch cats someday jacob <laughs> oh, no, I'll, I'll look forward to it you like survival you'll love it <laughs> it's basically the same thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> The cats look worse. <laughs> mm, they do, actually. I'm sure. But yeah, that's kind of um, kind of wraps up what I have to say about Sarah Jane. But um, I think the idea of them making her a journalist was kind of a masterstroke as well. Mm-hmm. I think that's a clever yeah. personality slash character hook because it means that there's always reasons for her to be wanting to look into things, regardless of whether she's mostly whether she's actually doing it for journalistic purposes or just out of personal interest, I think it's a fun a fun way to characterise the companion. Yeah. yeah. Just to pick up on one thing you said, actually, I think it's interesting that 
as you say, people do associate Sarah Jane very much with uh, Tom Baker. And I think that brings out something interesting about companions, well, companions in general, which is how much we associate them with the, in terms of their relationship with a particular doctor. Because mm. uh, I think the reason that comes about is that, like, while Liz Layton and John Pertwee work very well together and by all accounts got on very well, she and Tom Baker had this amazing on-screen, on-screen chemistry, mm. which is just a joy to watch. Uh, and sometimes that just seems to happen where, like, a companion kind of really sparks with one doctor just on the basis of the chemistry between those actors as much as anything, which will come up a couple of times in the course of my list, actually. Oh, we're going to be talking about chemistry. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. I, think, I think I know where you're going with Yeah. Because um, like, I was also going to go there. I think, I think it's interesting because I do think that, like, there's been more recent examples of that as well because I think I, like... Clara a lot better with Capaldi than with mm. um, Matt Smith. I yeah. So I think sometimes it's the quality of the... I think partly with Sarah Jane, I think that she gets best, more and better stuff to do in some of the Tom Baker episodes. Yeah, yeah, sure. But also I do think it's like sometimes you can't really account for it, but like they're just going to gel better with like two actors mm. can mm. Um, really play off each other in interesting ways that can't necessarily be foreseen by like the production team. Yeah. Well, I'm also now thinking that I should put my four at number three. Okay. I'm going to leave it because it's going to complicate things too much. But number four, and I promise I'm not copying anyone. Oh, Bill Potts. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> I agree with literally everything you had to say. Yeah, it's it's she's so enthusiastic, and I think I'm much more positive about series nine now than I was. But I think at the time I was very exhausted after Series 9. I was a bit mm. fed up because I was fed up with Series 7 and 8. <laughs> right. Um, and I think when Bill comes in, it it really energises the whole thing again. Mm. I think her and Capaldi have a really good chemistry. And I think, for me, one of the things that I I want from a companion is is that kind of uh, that good relationship with the, with the Doctor, but also... Kind of a companion which inter who interacts with the Doctor in a way that brings out interesting things about the Doctor's character, mm. and similarly, the Doctor's character brings out interesting things about them. I think it's yeah. that kind of relationship, um, you know, where she kind of will sort of question his sort of almost like utilitarian stance at some points, and I think I like the kind of that professorial relationship as well uh, and the grandfatherly thing what you were saying mm. I think that's really good and so I think again I'm not copying you I've got it written down already <laughs> but uh, the, the episode I would pick will be Thin Ice mm. um, for all the reasons you've said um, yeah I think you kind of see her her kind of energy and enthusiasm you know with it being kind of the first trip into the past mm. and how amazed she is when she goes out onto the ice and the frost fair I think the episode does a really good job, as you were saying, of tackling all those issues of racism and and the Doctor punching, you know, a racist scumbag, possibly a metaphor for punching Nazis, who knows, um, mm. is 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 excellent. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I think she's great, and I just wish that she'd been in it longer. 
And I wish yeah. her and Capaldi would have had more time together. Yeah, for um, sure. But yeah, that's... did get an absolute banger yeah. of a season out of it. Though. <laughs> yeah, like, oh for sure. Yeah, yeah. But I can't, I can't really add much more because you pretty much said everything that I was thinking. But yeah, Bill's great. Yes, <laughs> for sure. There's a nice segue in there actually because speaking of professorial relationships, my number three is Ace. Oh, more enthusiasm in the room there. Ace is a fascinating companion in all kinds of ways. Because as everyone in the world has said, she is the template for new series companions. Uh, in the same way that the Carmel era is kind of a template for the new series. In terms of her kind of relative independence from the Doctor, even the kind of social material circumstances from which she, she comes, the fact that we get any engagement with those circumstances... Uh, which is kind of, if not entirely unprecedented, pretty close to it at least. Mm-hmm. And certainly not something that had happened for many years in the show. And it's the, it's in the relationship between the Seventh Doctor and Ace, I think. As, as fantastic as Ace is in, uh, in herself as a character. That the, the really interesting stuff lies. Because it's such a multifaceted and interesting relationship. There's a, an element of a mentor and a student... There's also an element in which she's his, like, attack dog on some level. Um, there's the the thing where he can be kind of alternately sort of hectoring and also pushing her on to sort of do things like blow things up. There's the fact that she blows things up a lot, which is just fun in itself. And there's the the strange kind of almost moral ambiguity at the heart of that relationship as well. The idea of, like, why did he choose her in the first place? Is he pushing her on to something? And what is that thing? And so, naturally, in the face of that, my episode has to be The Curse of Fenric. Yeah. Uh, which is the episode that kind of deals most overtly with that. And that kind of questions that relationship in itself. I've never loved the idea of, like, the God Complex does a similar thing, of people's faith in the Doctor being a kind of... Uh, a powerful force in itself. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of that, especially with the way it's equated with other kinds of faith. But I think Curse of Fenric manages to sell it because it has all of that kind of... that questioning of that relationship at, at the centre, which again is not something the show had ever really done. Present the idea of the relationship between Doctor and Companion not always necessarily being to everyone's benefit. You can maybe argue there's a bit of that in some of the uh, companion departures previously Tegan's for instance but it's something that I don't I also don't think the show really came back to until later and I will leave that mysterious for the moment because I'll be coming back to it uh, but yeah Ace is great I haven't read the new book yet but I really want to mm. the one that Sophie Aldred read read wrote probably read it as well um <laughs> presumably so. yes. at least once. if we had an audible sponsorship if yes. we were at that level of fame that would be where we could segue yeah. in oh if only get in touch audible mm, mm. <laughs> number three bill Potts. hey hey <laughs> um i feel like i'm kind of um I don't want to too much retread what's already been said because obviously it is quite similar. She's got great chemistry with Capaldi. Mm. I also feel like I relate to her even more having since that's having since her series came out, I have done the thing of working in a university mm. but not 
whilst also kind of wishing you could be a student at the university, but you can't because you have to work there. So having done that, I relate to her even more. But I just really like Bill and... I actually chose a different episode slash moment for her, so I'll go into that because I chose Eaters of Light mm. um, specifically for the moment, which I think I I don't know if I've mentioned on this podcast before, but I definitely talk about it a lot. But the moment when she's chatting to the Roman soldiers mm. and about the fact that she only likes girls and then they're like, oh, we're all normal. We all like boys and girls. And I just feel like, it's an example of the thing that we were, that you guys were gesturing to as well, which is the fact that if you choose a companion that you can have these interesting, com- that can create these interesting conversations with, and you actually put those conversations in the show, mm. then I think that you get some really interesting moments, especially in historical episodes, but also potentially in the future or other times. And I think that in the future or other times, like there is not more than one other time in the present, (laughs) you can, um, I think that it really shows the advantage of making diverse casting choices slash character decisions and then like seeing them through in the way the script is written to, because I think it really helps in getting a sense of who the character is because of the way they have to interact with the world day to day. But also it just, create some interesting conversations which I think is a lot of what makes what can elevate material of an episode from being good to being like really good or great Mm. I don't know about the whole I I do like Eaters of Light as an episode but I picked it mostly just for for that moment because Mm. I thought that was really nice and interesting touch and yeah unfortunately I'm uh well fortunately I got Jacob and Kieran to do the (laughs) difficult work of talking very deeply about Bill and I can just rock up and be like she's great number three love her <laughs> yeah I kind of thought Bill would be on all of our lists yeah. but I'm very pleased about it yeah I feel like it was kind of apparent that she was gonna feature somewhere on mine just from my reactions mm. to you guys picking her but yeah. I didn't want to say too much at the time but I'm glad that she's there because I think she's great yeah. mm. she's appeared because well, I, I I knew that she would be... I, I ended up with one from the Davies era and one from the Moffat era for the new series, but I knew immediately that it, that, that, that Bill was going to be mm. my favourite of that era. Mm. Although I like Clara, Rory and Amy like plenty as well. Mm. She's the gal. Mm. And I think it really did feel refreshing, like what Jacob was saying, to have mm. um, this like new sort of burst of energy with um, Pearl Mackey and her excellent performance. Mm-hmm. Well, number three, I wasn't sure about this. This is what I keep saying I wasn't sure about. But um, number three, I put Sarah Jane Smith. Ah. Um, The reason being that I think, as you were saying, you know, the, the, the fact she's a journalist, and I think there is an attempt, doesn't always work, but there is an attempt to try and make her more proactive to not, just have her kind of being threatened or tied up all the time. I think, unfortunately, mm. it does fall back into that quite a lot. Mm. Like we discussed, you know, like with the Time Warrior, where you had Robert Holmes basically putting her into, like, nasty situations and stuff. But I do I do think at least the intention is there. Um, and I think Elizabeth Sladen herself is, like, you know, does a good job of, like, 
kind of giving the character like an energy and enthusiasm and I think yeah in 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 that I guess in that sense really at least in the attempt of trying to make her into a kind of a stronger companion she is kind of the mold hmm. for future companions and so that's kind of why I put her up as high as I have even though I don't feel that she's necessarily always that well served I really struggled to pick an episode for her though mm. I have to admit um, for that very reason mm. um, School Reunion was one that I was thinking of mm-hmm. um, because it kind of shows how important she is to the series as a whole the fact she can come back after all that time and be with a third Doctor you know, mm. alongside having been with Pertwee and with Baker I think she's a slightly different character to what she is in the original series when she returns. Mm. I don't think she's quite the same. So it's, that's not necessarily a representative episode. And the other one I thought of was, and it's only for one moment because I can't remember most of the rest of it because I haven't watched it for years, but The Hand of Fear. Oh, okay. Um, because okay. it's the one in which she leaves and mm. there's the moment where mm. she leaves and it's kind of, it's telling about her importance to the series that, that is quite an emotional moment. And yeah. Tom Baker's Doctor seems quite emotional, and so, so does she. And that's not normal for the classic series. Mm, the mm. classic series doesn't tend to do emotional intelligence very often. Mm. Uh, it does a lot of things very well, but that's not one of them. And I think that's something that's really nice and really significant. Unfortunately, from my memory, she's not served very well by the rest of the Hand of Fear. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> the problem, yeah. I mean, I don't remember the rest of it, but I think most most episodes she's in, she's not really. Mm. But yeah, I think for that kind of end. end yeah. Point, I think. I believe that was like um, citation needed, but I believe a lot of that final conversation was, it was Tom Baker and Liz Layden who came up with it. Like improv. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. They didn't even know the cameras were rolling. Mm-hmm. They, they probably did. I um. assume they did. It's it. They wouldn't have been subtle cameras in 1960. <laughs> 1960, 1976 BBC Studios. Mm. Uh, 77, actually. I think a big part of Sarah Jane um, and her ongoing appeal is that Liz Sladen is very good. Mm. Yeah. And I think that she brings a lot to the part, even when she's one of those people where, even if they're not given a particularly great script, she can, like, elevate it by her um, kind of presence and the detail she brings to the character and stuff i think she's really good yeah i think that's that's often a sign of a really good person a really good person a really good actor in um in doctor who in particular where let's face it the scripts do vary Mm. because i think that's something i would say of patrick troughton as well uh who has some abysmal stuff um throughout his tenure but is never less than watchable i would say the same possibly more controversially in this company of peter davison but yeah Actually, I was wondering while you were speaking, Jacob, because um, mm. I was trying to figure this out. Apart from possibly the break, is Sarah Jane the person who has interacted with the most Doctors? Because you've got the the third Doctor, the fourth uh, Doctor. She might meet more in the five Doctors. I can't remember. I think I think she might be, yeah, because she's also interacted with other ones in the Sarah Jane adventures. Yeah, well, there's the 10th Doctor, them. obviously, in School Reunion, but yeah. also the 11th Doctor in... Do we Sarah count River Song in people who've interacted with the most Doctors? Oh, good point. <laughs> Cause... Or Clara. Oh, shit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think Clara might win that one, actually. Yeah. She's cheating in a way. but uh, up, to present, up to present era, yeah. Yeah. Clara wins. 
I uh, think in terms of actors that are doing a lot with the mater- with not very good material at the moment, I just wanted to say for the record, I think Tosin Cole is knocking out of the park. Yes, he's mm. not got a lot, but yeah, God bless him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Amanda Gill as well. I think goes that's to. true. Mm. Uh, but she's kind of gotten comfortable with not having anything to do mm. uh, over the last two years. So let's move on to my number two. Which I think, actually, from some of the things we've been saying, is potentially going to be a bit of a surprise. Uh, but my number mm. two in my top five companions is Clara Oswald. Ooh. Now, this is an interesting Ooh. one, because even a few months ago, I certainly a while ago, Clara wouldn't have been anywhere near this list for me. But the more I've looked back on, on her tenure on the show... The more I've looked back on series uh, eight and nine, certainly, the more I've realized that actually there are some really, really interesting things going on with her character. Because Clara is one of the few companions, maybe the only one at certain points, who is presented as on some level equal with the Doctor. And that's that's something that really seems to really seems to inspire some people's ire, which is interesting in itself. And it's it's something that's quite clearly positioned as well in her tenure. If you think of an episode like Flatline, where she was basically doing the Doctor's job for that episode. And so, in the same way that I was suggesting that um, Ace's relationship with the, the Seventh Doctor really kind of implicitly at least questions the power dynamic between a Doctor and Companion, over the course of Clara's relationship, certainly with the Twelfth Doctor, that relationship gets, if not inverted, at least so heavily questioned as to almost cease to exist. I think I can sum this up best with the Clara episode that I've chosen, actually. Which is... I Again, I had quite a few to choose from here. I could have chosen Flatline. I considered Last Christmas, actually. Because, again, that's that's an interesting one, not just in terms of Clara's role, but in terms of the kind of what the series is doing with her in that episode, the kind of the emotional depths that her character plums in that, which are almost unprecedented to some extent. And it's pro- it's one of the most profound expressions of grief in the series until Heaven Sent, I think, actually, um, which is only 12 episodes later, but there you go. Uh, that's in itself proof of Clara's power within the narrative that Heaven Sent is about the Doctor's grief over her. Uh, Face the Raven, likewise, is obviously an episode that you couldn't really do with any other companion and is very strong. Another shout-out to Sarah Dollard there. But the episode I had to choose was Hellbent, really. Because Hellbent is an episode based around the fact that the Twelfth Doctor and Clara's relationship has is so powerful, in some sense, that it almost distorts space-based time. And it almost distorts the narrative itself. People have a lot of complaints about Hellbent. Some of which I think are well-founded. Some less so. Even though I, uh, every time I watch it. I more and more think it's a masterpiece. People have a lot of complaints about Hellbent. That like it. Uh, it sidelines certain interesting developments. And that like. It seems weird to finally go back to Gallifrey. And then kind of have. Uh, the Doctor pursuing this. Other goal that doesn't actually have that much. Seemingly have that much to do with Gallifrey which I actually think is a much better way to go because 
the kind of exploration of Gallifrey that people seem to want would probably have been more fan-wanky than anything. But I digress. Um, because I think, again, what interests me here is that that's proof of how Clara's power as a companion distorts the entire narrative to the uh, to the extent that it can tilt an episode like that off its axis. And I mean this as a profound compliment. The Twelfth Doctor's companion with the Twelfth Doctor's companion, the Twelfth Doctor's conversation with Clara towards the end of that episode, which I'll pro- talk far more about uh, when we come to do series nine, uh, I think might be one of the best pieces of writing in the whole series. It's an extraordinary portrait of a relationship that has grown incredibly toxic, not through the really the fault of either participant in it, but just as some kind of combination of these two people, uh, the chemistry of these two people. And we talk a lot about chemistry. Again, I think uh, Capaldi and Jenna Coleman have amazing chemistry together, and that's a lot of what makes this dynamic work. Likewise, I think uh, even an episode like Kill the Moon, which is kind of in dialogue with that uh, that scene in Hellbent, in which Clara, and uh, not solely her, but she's certainly the focus of the narrative, is briefly responsible for the entire human race. I find it quite diff- difficult to talk about this because I don't know that, like... I think Clara is so unprecedented in many ways as a companion in terms of the role that, that she has that I think she's quite difficult to talk about. But I think, I mean, Jenna Coleman is amazing in episode after episode. Uh, and as I've said, she and Capaldi work amazing, amazingly opposite each other. And I think that in a certain, I never expect to see another companion like Clara, put it that way. Because I think, in a sense, she represents an extreme that the show almost can't come back from. Because by the nature of the show, the show being called Doctor Who, uh, there were some people who sardonically referred to it as Clara Who during like series eight and, and nine, which is why people are terrible. But um, there is almost a degree of truth to that. Uh, in the the power that Clara was given within the narrative. Uh, and I, I think it's an extraordinary thing. I, like I say, I don't think I'll ever see it again within the show. Whether or not I want to is a, uh, another matter. But yeah, I think it was something that was worth doing. You'll notice, incidentally, that I'm talking entirely about Clara's role with the 12th Doctor, not the 11th. Mm. Her role in Series 7 is like, okay. I don't love the impossible girl thing. The way it ends, the way it resolves, I, I kind of like. But yeah, I, I really don't think she was fully realized as a character until Deep Breath mm. and from then on. I think one of the hangups that I have and may continue to have about Clara, to be honest, is the fact that it's like takes that it takes until her time with Capaldi for her to really get... yeah get her due as a character to be honest yeah like i like her but i i think Mm. that i'd be interested to see how i how i feel about her when we do go back and watch just the capaldi series Mm. each in like just the capaldi series like in isolation without the matt smith one first because i think that it might be one of those things where because i had a sort of negative first impression of her i didn't really like give her the the same amount of chance that perhaps I should that I perhaps I should have. Having said, I like her plenty, but mm. I, I I think that mm. I'll be interested to revisit some of her yeah. stuff, especially knowing how much mm. how, how big a fan you are of those series. Well, I mean that's what happened with me 
was that I discovered that other uh, other people really highly rated. I mean, I'd, I'd liked Capaldi's performance a lot. I was, I mean, I was very excited when Capaldi was cast, apart from anything else. But how highly they rated Clara as a companion and the things that uh, are done with her character in series eight and nine. Uh, and going back, I was really blown away. Actually, to be fair, I went. I think um, the last time I rewatched Hellbent was even before I'd kind of quite realized how popular she was with some people. And as I say, I was really blown away by the way that dynamic resolves. So uh, my pick for my second favorite companion is Leela. Ooh. This is partly where it gets to the point of companions that made a strong impression on me early on, because Leela was definitely one of the first classic Who companions that I really latched onto. And I think that's because she represents something quite different in her coming from a less sort of, well, I say less technologically advanced civilization. Obviously, that's a bit more nuanced than what it might seem because she's more like from an advanced civilization that became unadvanced. But it's kind of nice to have that like different perspective on things. And I think her priorities are quite different. I think sometimes it's done in like a way that is kind of dodgy, obviously. Mm. But I think that it does make for some fun interactions. Um, and I like that she's always trying to go around getting people with the thorn. What's it called? The devil's the thorn? Janus thorn? The Janus yeah. thorn. I just like how she's always trying to go around getting people with that. I think that's a fun goal and I approve. The, the story I chose to represent one of the moments I see as the best of Leela was Robots of Death because that's the one which opens mm. with her yo-yoing thing mm. and the explanation of how the TARDIS works as like boxes inside boxes which I enjoyed also key point how they interact with robots get them to the robots the robots of death everyone has to interact with robots at some point it's important yeah. I think that it's nice that they it's interesting to like go for such a clear attempt to get a companion with a different perspective which is something that we've not really seen in the new series. And I don't know how well it would necessarily work having companions from different points in history or radically different alien civilizations. I guess the closest would be Nardal. Yeah, mm. that's fair. We've had Nardal. Yeah. Um, but he's in combination with Bill. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's not really like the main companion. Mm. I guess also we kind of have the two, I say two, there's only one, but like Clara in Victorian times. But that's yeah. kind of a borderline example, like very borderline example. But I think that it does make for some interesting conversations. I think there's a lot of humour potentially. Another episode I was, con- another story I was considering for an example of her is uh, Horror Fang Rock, mm. just because that's the one where she's interacting with the quite like uptight Edwardian folks, which is fun. And also some of the, like, bits in Talons of Wang Chiang that don't, like, make me hate everything about life mm. are the bits where she's coming up against Victorian conventions. But even some of them I don't like. Mm. God damn it. <laughs> but yeah, I like Leela a lot. Um, and I think Louise Jameson does a really nice performance. Mm. Yeah, she's great. Leela was, in early drafts, my number five. Ah. Um... Yeah, I, I deliberately wanted to mention that she's one that I latched on to early because I want to be fair about what might be my biases. But I do think that it's like 
I do think that it's worth talking about the ones that I instinct that were instinctively my favourites versus the ones that I might have thought through a bit more and picked mm. because I think that sometimes that initial feeling of relating to someone and liking them is what's important in a companion and in a doctor as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in terms of my list, like, actually Clara is a good example of someone who rose up the list the more I thought about her, the more I thought about her arc. Uh, she was always on there, but, like, I think she went from number four to number two, mm. just as a, on the strength of that. Well, for my number two, I have picked Romana, Ooh. number two. Ah. Yeah. Chemistry. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. where I was going. That's where I was going. I yeah. mean, yeah, as soon as you said that, I did yeah. that. Yeah, no, like, her and Tom Baker have the most wonderful chemistry for obvious reasons. Yes. I think it's really interesting having him travel with another time, well, time lady. She's almost like an equal with him and, like, they kind of play off each other. Mm. Um, and I think, for me, the, the kind of the episode that, kind of shows off a lot of that is City of Death, yeah. which is like a fantastic episode anyway and everyone should watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you kind of get those montages where they're going throughout the through Paris and you know, they're kind of you know saying you're talking philosophically or geographically and all that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And it just yeah, it's just it works really well. Lola Ward is great. Yeah. Yeah, I mean City of Death is great on many levels but like uh, I think it does it shows off not only not only is it the best showcase of Tom Baker and Lala Ward's chemistry because mm. it uh, there are points in that episode where it feels like they just had a camera following them around Paris yeah, yeah. but also like she does get a lot to do in that story she does kind of there are lots of little bits and pieces that she kind of figures out herself there's like bits where the doctor's off doing something and she's off doing something else mm. uh, sometimes with Duggan and so there's there's kind of there's an independence uh, going on there. So let's talk honorable mentions for a bit before yeah, we get to sure. our numbers numbers one. So like I've actually already mentioned one of mine, which is Leela. Uh, I think the reason she didn't make my list was as much as I like her character, as much as I like Louise Jameson, there are too many kind of implications going on in the sort of Eliza Doolittle type story that she has going on that concern me. Um, as much as I do like her as a character, the more I think about that, the more worried I get. Especially given that she does have to be the companion in Talons of Wang Chiang, which is a sullying episode <laughs> in all senses. No one was a part of it that was not tarnished somehow. Mm, yeah. Yeah, so for my honourable mentions, I'd like to point out that we specified, although we've not mentioned it yet, that this had to be humanoid companions. Yes, yes, yes. Because otherwise, there would have been nothing stopping me from fulfilling my ultimate goal of finding enough versions of K9 to fill out the top five. There are Which I think four. there might be. There's, a, there's definitely four. Mm. I just have to find or create a fifth <laughs> one. I bet there's five, like, if you can't, like, big finish ones or something. Oh, God, yeah. But... Yeah, I think K9 is great, and that's just what I wanted. That's what I wanted to get out at this point. The honourable mention of the best boy, both a dog and a robot. What more could you ask for ever? Mm. Stunned silence. <laughs> <laughs> As is only appropriate. Do you have any other honourable mentions to get through? Or I have an honourable mention. Oh, okay. Now, technically not a companion. Oh, okay. It doesn't matter because he's there all the time. Sergeant Benson. Mm. Yes! Steadfast, dependable, 
charismatic. Mm-hmm. Hey, you've not seen my number one yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, I love Benton. Yeah. yeah. Again, Benton, I think, like, like the Brig, it's kind of, when you start pairing it down to what makes a companion, he does seem to fulfill most of the criteria. Yeah. I mean, yeah. apart from anything else, I love his reaction to going into the TARDIS in um, The Three Doctors, where, as opposed to everyone else going, oh, it's bigger on the inside. He just kind of goes, oh, okay, so that's what's in here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess once you've seen that many people go in it and come out of it, you kind of, like... Benton did, like, the work in his own head. Yeah. On a related note with, like, people who realistically are companions, but we don't always think about them in that way, mm-hmm. I had genuinely considered putting Mickey Smith as my fifth mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Just because I really like Mickey, and I like his overall arc throughout the episodes that he's in, where he kind of learns how to become more self-reliant from when we see him, like, being very... Like, a bit of a man-child initially. Mm. Yeah, I guess what kind of kept me from that was partly because I felt like it wasn't really fair to give that spot to someone who we... I think sometimes if you have people who appear less, that means those appearances can have more impact and you treasure them more. And so it felt a little bit unfair to give the spot to someone who gets to have the sense of surprise and delight when they're in an episode rather than someone that you know is going to be there all the time and so you kind of have to mm. so and so you kind of have to have a more long-term investment in i also like did consider putting jackie tyler in but like that was really pushing him <laughs> um but mm. yeah that's why he didn't make it but i do really like mickey and i just wanted to like put that out there yeah i think that makes sense i mean the the obvious comparison point i guess would be rory who like clearly is a companion mm. and appears regularly and previously in every episode of series six for instance mm. um also i mean while, while we're at it rory's an honorable mention for me so and amy as well actually i think i would even though they're quite different characters in some ways with quite different roles i uh, i would i think i like them about equally mm. albeit in different ways for different reasons because we've been revisiting some of their episodes recently i've kind of been reminded of why much i how much i like both of them actually because I think I, re- I remembered liking Rory better. Um, but actually, I had forgotten how much I like Amy as well. I bet there are people who don't count Rory as a companion. And those people are wrong. Yes. But I do think yeah. that there's like a pro- there's still a prevailing view that it's Doctor Who and his assistant. Yeah, yes. Well, the Doctor and his assistant, but you those know... Those people probably say Doctor Who and his assistant, yeah. if we're honest. Like, as if it was like a big... Fin- like, no, no, as if it was like a target novelization. Yeah. Where... The people who aren't those pretty young women don't really count as the companions. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the things that I think is there somewhere behind our idea of what mm. a Doctor Who companion is and isn't. Mm. And that can be quite difficult to untangle from what we're actually seeing on screen. Yeah. But I do definitely think that that's in some way how some of the companions were designed i mean i've just Mm. talked about leela for example and there is this idea of like the companions are there to be something for the dads yeah which is the most horrible thing because like why do you need to like be having your sexual needs catered to when you're watching a show with your kids that's Mm. weird but um i think that that was something that 
was definitely built into the show at some points mm. throughout its history yeah. and at some more than others. Yes. And I think that it has a bit of a legacy. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's interesting because that's not the model until the middle of the Pertwee era. Mm. Uh, and even then, because it's Earthbound, it's kind of a bit different. Mm. Um, but Joe is really the first uh, companion who properly seems to fit into that mould. Oh, she's an honourable mention, actually. I didn't get to her. Mm. But her and Ace and Tegan are all my, all the rest of my honourable ah. mentions. Because I like all of them. And if I'd seen more Ace episodes and more Tegan episodes, which I still have work to do on, they might have made the list. And that Joe was just another one in the same kind of field as Sarah Jane, where I'm like, she's such like an emotional core for the show for mm. like such a amount of time. But then ultimately I was kind of like, well, I like Sarah Jane more much as I do still love Joe Grant. Mm-hmm. But they were all ones that like may come in in future iterations of this list yeah. or um, were definitely in the in the pool of people that could have got into this top five as well. Mm. I mean, Sarah Jane's one of my honourable mentions, I should say. It's funny, as, as much as I like her, and I really do like her, uh, she's never been, like, top tier for me. I like most of the episodes that she's in. I like Liz Slayton a lot. She has fantastic chemistry with Tom Baker and with John Pertwee, to a lesser extent. It might partly be reflect my feelings about that era of the show, to be honest. Because I, I think, to a certain extent... It's hard, it can be hard to disentangle your feelings about a companion from your feelings about an era of the show. And early Tom Baker is not my favourite era of the show for various reasons, uh, which we'll, we will get to in future episodes, I'm sure. But, like, she is very good. Does she spark joy? She sparks moderate joy. <laughs> Restrained joy. Yes. Um... I mean, while we're talking about, like, kind of templates and where things started out, the other big honourable mention I should point out that I have is Barbara. Ah. Because, like, people have argued quite convincingly that for the first series and a half, Barbara is the main character. Uh, Because the Doctor is this strange, otherworldly figure that we really don't know anything about. And Barbara, more than anyone else, Ian as well, but particularly Barbara, Mm. Uh, is the one who is kind of reacting to every new situation that they find themselves in. It's Barbara who ends up being the, if you think of an episode like the Aztecs, uh, it's Barbara who is kind of the moral core of that episode. Is it Barbara who has the initial concern about Susan as well, or is that kind of both of them? Ooh, I haven't seen an Unearthly Child recently enough to... Yeah, I can't remember, but um, I I think that there's something there as well about in that she's kind of more concerned yeah. for longer possibly but yeah i am um, i just wanted to mm, no i mean that's a point in itself because that that suggests that it's barbara who kind of starts the show as well mm. uh but yeah like barbara's fantastic <laughs> and again she and hartnell are like great together they have a lot of like quite a few of those relatively early stories if not center on at least like come down to if not confrontations then at least kind of heated discussions between Barbara and the Doctor again the Aztecs is a, a good example again like Hartnell is famously not cons- the most consistent but like in all of those interactions he's at the top of his game and it's a joy to watch that's Fox joy mm. 
Do you have any more honourable mentions? Um, I don't have honourable mentions. The only thing I had really was, um, I thought, because you were saying about Barbara, I don't know how you feel about this, but I am not a fan of Susan at no. all. Oh, we I, can do dishonourable mentions yeah, now. Well, well, like, oh, yeah. Okay. Susan. So like, <laughs> it, uh, like, I just think... I, I realised this recently when I, I went home and I watched... I was watching The Reign of Terror and I, I haven't watched anything with Susan for ages. Hmm. And I feel like she's part of that problem that we kind of picked up on of companions who, you know, just kind of scream and run away and that's kind of it, like female companions. And it, it makes no sense... Because, like, yeah, I know she's the Doctor's granddaughter, but there's also plenty of implications that she's travelled with him for a while, mm. she's extremely knowledgeable. Why on earth would she be terrified of absolutely everything that she sees? Like, mm. it just... it it just. I mean, I don't like that thing any that kind of thing anyway, mm. where they kind of reduce the companion down to that. But I think it's particularly bad with her because she should be capable within the story. Mm. Yeah... It, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what you think about that, but... No, I think um, Susan's interesting because the longer the show has gone on, in a way, the more Susan seems very weird mm. because there's all kinds of implications within Susan. The more we find out about the Time Lords and uh, Gallifrey and all of this stuff that clearly just are not there mm. in that character as... She was woven mm. on a loom. Yes, yes, she came from a loom. We know that now. That's incontrovertible fact. Mm. Susan is the timeless child. She might be. Getting ahead of the... Oh, God. Uh, this was before the, this <laughs> yes. before the finale of uh, series... Yeah, of series 12, yeah. yeah. And to clarify, this is before either of the two parts of the finale have aired, so... So just in case, and like I think there's a reason, <laughs> there's, it's not impossible it's that this not is going to be the answer. So just in case, I want to get Susan is the timeless child out there, and if I'm wrong, then I'm glad. <laughs> hmm. I mean, there's El Sandover has written a lot about the what she calls the problem of Susan, which has various implications involving like like the sexual maturity of companions and that kind of thing, which is another thing that's interesting about Ace, actually. Mm. Uh, we can come back to that and another way in which she kind of breaks that mould. But the fact that Susan's story ends at the end of the Dalek Invasion of Earth mm. with her being paired off with a random man called David Cameron. Oh! <laughs> according to the novelization, <laughs> which is amazing and awful. And the Doctor saying, like, yes, I will come back. And then never coming back, as far as we know. How busy! <laughs> yeah. So maybe the, the the world in the Dark Invasion of Earth is just like the UK post Brexit. In some ways, it does seem to be. <laughs> um, but that's that's a whole other topic. I How think. old is Susan when she gets married? We we don't know. Okay, I just wanted to make sure that we weren't insinuating that David Cameron was going to have like a child bride, even though this David Cameron in the novelization, the fictional one may have one because <laughs> she's like 15 at the beginning right uh, she's suggested to be 15 oh like. but we don't she's know she's got to be school age because she was in the school but yeah, yeah like said, that doesn't mean oh. anything does it yeah yeah well in that case i think we're safe legal mm. implications mean nothing <laughs> yeah she could be like a hundred yeah. yeah 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 and i think the implications around what we know about time lords lean to more towards her being like yeah. Probably quite a bit older. Mm. And then there's like all of the implications going on in Remembrance of the Daleks about what the Doctor was doing in London and 
all of that kind of very confusing stuff that drives Tatwood up the wall in a very entertaining way. <laughs> um, what other dishonorable mentions do we have then? Well, um, there's one glaring one. Yes, isn't there? there is. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it feels kind of like cliche to mention Adric at this point, but I think we're all thinking it. Yes. But I was thinking a bit about why he's so dislikable. Mm. And I think that it's kind of the perfect storm of him being written in a way that doesn't really endear him to the audience, but also not being acted particularly well. Yes. So I think that it's kind of both of those things combining... Plus the fact that I feel like he never really gelled with either of the two doctors that he's mm. paired with. I don't think they really had a rapport. And it never really seems like he gets along with Nyssa and Tegan particularly no. well. Mm. So I think it's a bit difficult because he's so sort of, he seems to be so abrasive to the people mm. around him that you're not really sure what you're supposed, how you're supposed to be engaging with him in a positive way. And I think that's really the the heart of the problem, along with the fact that he always seems to take the side of the bad guy. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. I remember when Doctor Who on Twitch was on, and we were watching through, like, the end of Tom Baker, the beginning of Peter Davison, and it all almost seemed to, like, culminate after a few episodes, because he does, in State of Decay, he, like, pretends to side with the vampires, and then Castor Valve obviously gets kidnapped by the Master, and then in Fort of Doomsday, he outright just sides with the villain. It's He's like, re- yeah, I think both sides have good arguments. And <laughs> yeah. like, I think um, actually, speaking of Doctor Who on Twitch, on the in the pre-show for the Fourth Doctor, Paul Cornell made a very good point where he suggested that Adric is written in a very weird way, where sometimes he's like the rebellious teen who's a mem- like street gang member, and sometimes he's the like genius child. Mm. And they never quite gel. Mm. If we were to choose an episode to sum up the the dishonorable mentions as well, then the perfect one is actually Earthshock for yeah. all kinds of reasons. Yeah. Because for me, it just really speaks to how misconceived Adric was as a character. Mm. That like in the the story where we're probably meant to feel sorry for him begins with him getting really snotty with the Doctor mm. and yeah. them having a bit of a tiff. And then we get his final line being, now I'll never know if I was right. Which again is (laughs) mind-bogglingly misconceived. Because it's presumably meant to arouse some kind of pathos. But instead it's just like, oh for God's sake, shut up. (laughs) If I'm ever in a situation where I get to choose my last words, do you think I should pick, now I'll never know if I was right, just for the jokes? (laughs) I mean that's entirely your decision. It'll be a very niche, a very niche joke, but mm. I'll enjoy it in my last moment. There's also the fact that when he's do, do using the keyboard, I think it's Stephen Moffat who said this in an interview. When he's using the keyboard on the spaceship, you can tell that he knows it's rigged to blow up because he's just like jabbing it and then moving <laughs> his hand away. <laughs> oh wow! It's very entertaining. <laughs> Although, uh, so I did once read an article in Doctor Who magazine that was about people having like their sexual awakenings because of Doctor Who companions. And there was like something about people realising that they were gay because I guess this was like just male fans only Mm. or something because they saw Adric and I was like, what? (laughs) Well, at the time I didn't register it, but later I was like, this 
kid. And uh, so apparently he was doing it for some people. Like, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to put that out there. And I also have heard accounts of people being genuinely moved by uh, the broken star at the end of um, mm. Earthshock. Mm. But I remain sceptical at this point. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I feel like we could probably like just keep roasting Adric we, for a really long could. time. Um, um, do we, we have any other dishonourable mentions? I'm not a massive fan of Harry Sullivan. Yeah, mm. I, I would say I'm neutral on Harry, to be honest. Yeah, I'm not really... I don't really I'm like how otherwise. he seems to be posed some po- at sometimes as like the opposite side to Sarah Jane's women's lib energies as if yeah. they were like trying to do some sort of like neutrality thing where like, oh well, you know that but that's not every story, mm. so I feel like it would be unfair for me to judge him on that. But I do feel like he has some of those energies sometimes. Yeah, he has very um he's not that young, but he has a young conservative's energy somehow. Or like being a gentleman energies. Yeah, it's the combination of the blazer and referring to Sarah as old girl, I think. Mm. But, you know, I don't necessarily... I dislike the way that he is used sometimes in stories, but I Mm. don't necessarily dislike him, certainly not in the same realm Mm. as some of the other mentioned Adric. Yeah. I also think that there are companions that just never really Mm. get fleshed out enough. Yes, oh, for sure. Pending to see who's going to be added to this list in the future. But, yeah, I think sometimes... Mm. Oh, actually, I do have another dishonourable mention. Every time when they had a Christmas special, an Easter special, or whatever special, and there wasn't a companion at the time, but instead of doing something interesting and having the Doctor without a companion, they Mm. just wrote in a random person, particularly red bus on planet lady planet oh yeah. yeah but also yeah. I although i maintain from the christmas specials christmas special that um kylie minogue's performance as astrid is fine i also don't think that it's advisable I, I think it's silly mm. to just write in a companion yeah for one episode instead of making yourself do something interesting with the fact that there's a doctor on his own well yeah. i mean the when they did that in the waters of mars it was really good and interesting. Exactly. So. Oh, when yeah. they did it in Heaven Sent, it's yeah, really yeah. good. And when they do it in Deadly Assassin. <laughs> yeah, like... yes. I Although... also think, just in general, the Moffat Christmas specials, whilst not all great, tended to not do the super obvious thing of like, yes. this mm. is the companion for this episode. Whereas I yeah. think that with some of the Davies ones, you could really tell that like, okay, here's who we're drafting in to fulfill yeah, this role because yeah. we need someone. But yeah, Waters of Mars was good. Yeah. Like, I I think that that's an example of how, if you're willing to kind of step outside of that format for an episode, you can create something that's good and interesting in its own right. Mm -hmm. But I do think that, like, just the complete sort of non-entity companions that, like, show up for an episode because they needed one, just not good. Yeah. Dislike. (laughs) I will point out, with regard to the Deadly Assassin, that the fact that that uh, story doesn't have a companion means it is, I believe, the only story of the classic series, anyway, probably of the whole series, to feature no women. Mm. So that's Yay. worth mentioning. <laughs> hey, I mean, Monster of Peladon comes close, guys. There's a few where, like, the only woman is the companion, oh, but, yeah. like... None at all in Deadly Assassin, which is a great story in many ways, but that's not one of them. One of the things I enjoy about uh, Leela's first story, in fact, is that 
for a while I was like completely unclear if the Sever team had any women. But like then there are just some like just around. But mm. I th- I'm pretty sure she's the only woman in that story. Although she might not be because there's quite a lot of episodes that aren't just the server team. Yeah, no, I th- I think there are a couple of other women around. But she might be the only one that like has any major role. Yeah, mm. but yeah, it'd be nice to have. It's nice to have women in stories, but also mm. not to just have them drafted in as like default companion that fits in the companion yeah. shaped mm. hole that we have in this story. Yeah. Uh, I think we should probably move on to our number one. Yes. Our long-awaited number one. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, it's kind of nice that we had the the gap in which we did honourable and dishonourable mentions. Because that will distract from the fact that I think we may have a bit of a run going on here. (laughs) Because my number one is Romana 2. Way! Again, fairly predictably, I think. For all the reasons Jacob said, uh, Lala Ward is fantastic. Actually, my... I mean... To go back to honourable mentions for just a second, like I, I don't want to get through this without pointing out that Mary Tam is also mm-hmm. fantastic. Yeah. And in fact, I I go back and forth on whether I even consider the two Romanas to be separate for the purposes of this. Mm. Um, because I I feel like there's a cohesive character in there in, the, in a way that like we consider the Doctors more separately. But yeah, I mean, with that said... For obvious reasons, Lala Ward kind of has the incredible chemistry with Tom Baker. And that, like, while season 17 is kind of hit and miss in terms of the writing, I think it's never less than watchable purely for... And first half of season 18. Never less than watchable purely for just having those two on screen. Of course, the other thing about Romana is that, like, more than anyone else, uh, at least until Clara, I would say... Uh, she is the companion who is positioned as the Doctor's equal. Mm. And in fact, probably slightly more so with Romana t- than Romana 1, but positioned as even his superior in some ways, and having superior knowledge in at least certain areas, which is interesting, uh, and really not a dynamic we're all used to. If I'm giving honourable mentions again, if I were talking about more about Romana 1, the reboss operation would be my, mm. my the episode I'd point to for her, uh, partly because it's just great episode and really underrated I think but uh, also because it has that kind of that dynamic where she's constantly psychoanalyzing him and really getting under his skin and it visibly unnerves him but since I'm talking about Romana too I love the fact that kind of like I was saying about City of Death that she gets to carry whole strands of story and almost every story she's in I would say actually the one I've picked is actually the Horns of Naimon. <laughs> simply because, uh, partly because I, I love Horns of Naimon way, way out of proportion to its actual quality <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but also also because Lala Ward has a really cool like blazer type outfit in it, and it's, it's good. Uh, she has like riding boots as well, quite, a, quite like Tom Baker's. Is but, that her pink sort of fox hunter outfit? Yeah, that's the one. The, oh, right, yeah. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's good. But, um... Also because, to a certain extent, uh, she is the protagonist for a lot of that episode. Because uh, the Doctor's like stuck in the TARDIS, making weird jokes about cricket. While she's the one who's interacting with, was his name Soldied? The yeah, ridiculous yeah. overacting Soldied. man. Um, <laughs> my favourite performance in all of Doctor Who. <laughs> I mean, if, if we ever do one like this, of like, you know, our top five one-story villains... 
then he and Irongron are going to be duking it out for my top spot. We should have a top five hams at some point. Yeah, oh, he and Irongron will be t- duking it out for my top spot. Yeah. But, um, yeah, she's the one who's kind of, who's more interacting with the story, more interacting with the villains and carrying a lot of that story, actually. So, yeah, she is nailed on my number one and was from the moment we first conceived this episode. So, if you're listening to this podcast, you may have not seen me in real life ever and even if you were seeing me in real life now i'm in my comfortable house clothes so this might not make any sense but if you've seen me out in my good clothes then you might have been able to guess what my number one is if it weren't for everything else that's come before because the number one is queen lala style inspiration romana second version (laughs) for like all the reasons that's already been stated I also did the thing of kind of wishing that I could include Romana 1 and Romana 2 as the same, but I felt it was a little bit cheating, so I plumped for the one that is, like, my favourite one. Mm. (laughs) But, yeah, Romana was one of the characters that, um, when I was first watching Classic Who, she was the one that I was instantly drawn to and remains my favourite Partly because I love her outfit so much in every single episode. She is a style inspiration and I have so many sailor dresses because of the <laughs> bit at the beginning of the Leisure Hive when she's mm. on the beach with K-9 in a little sailor suit thing. And she's so cool and she's so great. And I'm kind of like just losing myself to ramblings about how great Romana is. So I'll try and anchor myself to the story that I chose as representative. So, I'm a weak old fool, so I chose City of Death because I'm, I just, I couldn't not. I did actually consider Horns of Nyman, though, Ah. but it's so long since I've seen it that I felt like I should probably go with something that was more fresh in my mind. But I actually specifically wanted to highlight the section where she's in the cafe with Duggan, Mm, just because I thought that that was a fun example of um, the way that, in a similar but quite different way to the thing with Bill talking to the Roman soldiers. I thought that it's interesting. It's an interesting way about how things that are specific to her shape the interactions she has with other people and that making a kind of interesting moment in the story, because I think that it's fun to see Duggan have to like recalculate his expectations of who she is based on what she's saying, even though she looks quite young Mm. and such. And I also just think that, like, Duggan is excellent, so any time spent with him is quality time. <laughs> yeah, I don't really know what more I have to say about Romano that hasn't already been said, because I, like with Bill, have the distinction of being the third person to introduce her. But I think I do like that she's also a Time Lord. I think it's difficult, because in a way, the things that I like about Romana aren't things that you could do with every companion because it just wouldn't be feasible. I mean, you can't have them all be going out with the person playing the Doctor. No, I mean more like um, <laughs> I mean more like having a Time Lord companion works well if you do it once, but if you did that like every other time, it would drag. But I think the thing that I like about her and Leela is that they were clearly like experimenting and did quite a bit in the classic series actually mm-hmm. with the kinds of companions they were going to have and how they were going to interact with the different worlds differently from how the Earth-based companions, for which we have someone like Sarah Jane as a model, Mm. would 
do. And I actually kind of miss that inventiveness with companions, actually. I think I say miss, like I like I like I watched the classic <laughs> series before the new series, which obviously I didn't. But um I think that that's 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 something that I really like and that I would be interested to see again, although mm. only if it works well. Mm. Mm. So maybe not. <laughs> I think maybe off the back of what you've been saying, we should plug the um the Lala's wardrobe documentary on the Warriors Gate DVD. Okay, tentative plug because um there are two like dudes in it who were like writers or something. Yeah, I'm not sure who they were. And they're just talking about like ho 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 the schoolgirl outfit blah, 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 in like a weird way. Yeah. And then actually the dialogue with Lala and the designer is Lala being all like, oh well. I thought it would be really nice if, um, because I always hated wearing my school uniform when I was a little girl. So I thought maybe if little girls saw me wearing a school uniform, they'd think, "Oh, what are they? They'd be more excited to wear it and go to school," which is delightful. Mm. And then, like, of course, because the world is what it mm. is, and it was a sadly naive idea of how people were going to take it. I don't know. It's not her fault no. that it was like sexualized in that way, but like. It's quite jarring to see the two perspectives. Another, uh, also, Louise Jameson didn't realise how people were going to react to the mm. Leela costume. So that's a running theme. Mm. I would recommend the documentary because Romana has some excellent outfits, both mm. Romana's, although no. I'm more partial to Romana 2's. But I regard, <laughs> I regard the their kind of um, weird, like, way, lads kind of attitude towards her school uniform-esque outfit to be distasteful mm. and quite objectifying of a very complex character. Mm. That was a good hair flick for this audio medium. Thanks. I actually have my hair tied back as well, so it didn't even work in real life. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jacob, round us out with your number one. Well, I don't think this is going to be a surprise. At number one, I have Ace... I, like, I've been writing these down as we go, and I was writing the A just as you were speaking. <laughs> as soon, again, as soon as we knew that we were doing this, I knew exactly who was going at the top. Mm. Um, like, she's just fantastic. Like, the chemistry between her and McCoy is incredible. Mm. It's probably one of the best, if not the best, Doctor Companion uh, pairing Mm. Uh, in the series as a whole as I was saying earlier it does that thing again of it, the Doctor and the Companion work together in a really interesting way where they both reveal things about each other yeah yeah um, you know so the kind of the McCoy's kind of manipulative character is shown through the way he interacts with her mm. and and similarly that kind of brings out you know kind of her past and her kind of uh, backstory, I guess. But yeah, no, it's, yeah, she's great. And she beats the Dalek with a baseball bat, which yes. is uh, important. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, and as you were kind of saying before, that finally having that kind of materiality, I think is really good. And having it come from a council estate and being a template for future companions is another reason why I put her at the top. In terms of an episode kind of, exemplify her that was quite difficult I think I also ended up going with Curse of Fenric because you get 
you get the relationship between her and the doctor really strongly, you know, and he, he kind of, again, is very manipulative and says that he only took her on because, you know, he thought that Fenric had kind of plans for her and things like mm. that. Um, and he kind of breaks her faith in yes. him. So there's all of that going on there and there's this kind of relationship with the mother that, that comes through. But the other one that I was considering putting down is Ghostline. Because ah. I think there's some really good work done there as mm-hmm. well, you know, kind of when she goes back to the house, which she she burns to the ground essentially, and mm. um, and again, it's the kind of the strained relationship between the her and the Doctor at times. But yeah, I think Ace is is my number one. To be honest, most of season twenty six, you could I think is pretty exemplary of her. Really, I think you could pick yeah. most of season twenty five as well. Yeah. Certainly, yeah, Remembrance. Yeah. Certainly, Happiness Patrol. Yeah, probably Greatest Show in the Galaxy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even Silver Nemesis, yeah. I think, to yeah. an extent. The other thing I think that is really important with her for me is the fact that I think it's the point at which the classic series really has a has a like a, a good stab at trying to make a companion who's more complex has a backstory mm-hmm. and, and it's trying to finally provide some kind of emotional intelligence. Because mm-hmm. as I was saying earlier, that is never virtually never there in the classic series. And I think it's one of the few instances where it really is mm. and it works yeah. really well definitely I mean I really want to watch uh, the season 26 box <laughs> set now it's just all of it at once I actually have some ace catching up to do because I've seen survival and greatest show in the galaxy and that's kind of it really uh, you've not seen Curse of Fenric yet no, no. and I have I have a, I already have like a positive impression of ace but I feel like I've not really seen yeah as much as well I haven't seen as much as either of you and I possibly haven't seen enough to really be able to know how I feel about her as a character mm-hmm. so this is why one of many reasons why this list and I imagine all our lists are kind of only temporary in some way yeah. because oh, yeah. watching more of someone or re-watching more of a companion with different ideas in mind can really change really change how you mm-hmm. feel about them and stuff mm-hmm. and, yeah or shape them, or shape how you feel if you haven't watched enough to begin with. But yeah. yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, actually, the the first two Ace stories I watched were uh, Ghostlight and Curse of Fenric, I think, in that order. And so that those really uh, floored me with like, it's just not something I expected to see from the classic series and uh, the complexity of character building that was going on there. Mm. Are Ghostlight and Curse of Femric, respectively, the one with the World War Two outfit and the one with the nice with the dress? Other way around. Ah, because I've already got a very strong positive impression <laughs> based on the fashion choices. Because I saw the trailer for the new box set yeah. of season twenty six, and I was like, "Good outfits." Yeah, new it's box set also has a very good interview with uh, Sophie Aldred. She's very kind. She is. All of, that's the, that's something else that I want to say about like basically all of the actors that I know of that played the like classic Who companions, they seem to be really nice mm. and like they are a lot of them have good Twitter presences. Yeah, I mean Katie Manning in particular, and I feel very soothed mm. and gratified to see them thriving, and I just uh, it makes me want to like them even more on the show because they just seem so nice. Mm. I think that about rounds us out, actually. We've gone through a lot, I think, 
<clears throat> just in terms of making these lists, I think this has thrown up a lot of interesting conversations. I mean, I don't know if either of you had any idea if there was anything that was like unifying your lists. But like, when I look back at mine, what I find is they tend to be the companions who are relatively independent on some level, who uh, have some kind of competence, uh, who are suggested to have some degree of competence that is separate from the Doctor. Mm. Uh, that may, like with Ace, for instance, lie in areas unrelated to the Doctor even. Mm. So I suspect that probably speaks to what makes a good com- a companion that works for me anyway. But I mean, I think for me, um, what I was sort of thinking about as I was making the list, especially when I was thinking as well of things that I don't necessarily like so much with companions, is I think I think that all the companions that I really like are ones where you have a sense of who they are and that informs the way they interact with the different worlds mm, and mm. times that they find themselves in. Mm. I think I like to sort of feel that a story or a scene wouldn't have worked with any other companion. I think the worst thing is when when it would be some sort of interchangeable mess. Mm. And I think that all the ones that I picked kind of yeah. are representative of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think looking back over the most of these ones that I've picked are independent, competent, mm. um, independent of the Doctor. But I also think as well, for me, like an essential point is they have to be independent, but they also need to work with the Doctor yeah. at the time, mm. and they need to kind of bring something out about mm. them. Yeah, um, and and point. you know, and vice versa. Yeah, yeah, and I think that definitely runs through all of these pretty much. Yeah, I think I would say similar. And like, for instance, that's one of the reasons why I think Clara really shines with Capaldi, where she doesn't necessarily mm. she's fine, but like doesn't necessarily in the same way with Smith. Uh, it's also that the narrative focus is a bit different. Mm. It's a bit more exploring her as a character as opposed to the mystery of her. But uh, that's another. That's a kind of a separate matter. Um, so I think that about wraps us up for this Companions episode. I've enjoyed this a lot. This has been a nice kind of trip through all of Doctor Who in mm. uh, quite a, an interesting way. A journey through space and time. Mm. If Ooh. one will, must, must. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, our next episode, uh, it's a slight kind of change to the schedule for various practical reasons to do with the recording. But our next episode will be on uh, series six, so kind of relevant to some of what we were talking about earlier. And looking forward to getting through that. So until then, I have been Kira. I've been Nathan. I've been Jacob. And you can uh, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Give us a like, a comment on SoundCloud. I think you can do like a thumbs up thing on Spotify. Um, I don't know. Also, get Audible to sponsor us. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Squarespace as well. <laughs> oh, I know all the ad reads from everybody else's like podcasts and YouTube videos, so it yeah. should be great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. No, we could. Um, we could do the thing like Adam Buxton does and do like weird, stupid songs for our, our sponsors. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, give us any kind of feedback that you can. That would be very much appreciated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and until then, until the Series 6 episodes drop, as the kids do say. Mm-hmm. See you soon. Bye, fam. <laughs> Jacob was so shaken he couldn't say goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>